0: When someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be of fine flour. He is to pour oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the fine flour and oil, together with all the incense, and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. If someone's offering is a fellowship offering, and he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present before the Lord an animal without defect. He is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood against the altar on all sides. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed, he is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it before the Lord. 5 verse 17 If a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. He is to bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him, for the wrong he has committed unintentionally, and he will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hebrews chapter 10, starting at the first verse. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never be, never by the same sacrifices. ...repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would not have stopped being offered, for the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, It is written about me in the scroll I have come to do your will O Lord, O God First he said Sacrifice and offerings burnt offerings and sin offerings You did not desire Nor were you pleased with them Although the law required The attempt to be made Then he said Here I am I have come to do your will He set aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice... He has made perfect for ever those who are being made holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: <clears throat> Thank you, John. Thanks, uh, Audrey. Let's pray uh, for a moment. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to understand a little bit more of how we as <coughs> unholy and sinful and unrighteous people who long to be better, can enjoy the friendship and company of you who are holy and righteous and altogether perfect. Help us to understand how these very ancient writings and the more modern understanding of them in Hebrews, how these things shed light on how we can know you personally and enjoy friendship with you. Amen. So do keep Hebrews chapter 10 uh, open in front of you. You might want to keep a uh, finger in Leviticus as well. We're doing a series on Exodus and Leviticus. Last week you will recall that we were at the foot of Mount Sinai and the people of Israel had built the golden calf and worshipped it and were in trouble. Today we've moved on a little bit from that. We're still at the foot of Mount Sinai and we're looking at the giving of the law and in particular the ritual law, the sacrificial law and then uh, from the reading from Hebrews, we looked at the New Testament understanding of those verses. Now, uh, I love my car. Now I don't want you to think that I love it in an idolatrous sense, like the golden calf. but I'm extraordinarily fond of my car, more fond of it, actually, than other cars that I've owned. I love my car partly because it's a free gift, and actually the giver is here this morning, so thank you very much, Um, and Christians love free gifts, as you know. Uh, I love it because it's very reliable, even though it is quite old. It's a K-Reg Golf. I love it also because it's quite economic, uh, even when running around town. I love it because my wife tends not to drive it. If we go on long journeys, we tend to use hers, which is slightly more modern. So it doesn't really matter too much if I or the dog mess up the inside of the car because she tends not to come in it. Don't tell her I said that. But my car has one idiosyncrasy. You could call it a besetting sin, if you like. An idiosyncrasy. Sorry about that. But um, when my car warms up, uh, the oil light starts flashing and beeping very loudly at me. The first time it happened, and actually it was the last time that I took the car very far, was on the M4. I was somewhere between Reading and London. I stopped the car, because the oil light was flashing, and topped up with oil, but it started beeping again. So I stopped again and put more oil in, and yet more oil, until eventually an enormous cloud of black smoke started belching out of the car. At this point I thought it was time to call the AA. They arrived eventually, three hours later, and uh, drained the oil, and put new oil in, and off I went again. And the oil light started flashing and beeping at me again. So I thought it was time to have the car serviced. So I took the car to be serviced, and for nine months it was great. No oil light flashing, no beeping. Until last week, when I was driving from Charlbury off to see Jeremy Keith actually, uh, and then on to see David Keane. would you believe it, the flashing and beeping started again. Whatever I do, however much we repeat the prescribed remedy, the problem starts again. And you want to know in a word what was wrong with the Old Testament sacrifices that we read about in Leviticus. The problem was the same. They keep beeping and flashing. Well, they don't keep beeping and flashing. I mean, they had to be repeated again and again and again because they didn't really fix the problem. Actually, in my car, just to be relaxed, especially the donor who's sitting here, the beeping doesn't seem to matter at all, doesn't seem to affect it at all. It's just incredibly irritating when you're trying to listen to the sports news on half hour because it interrupts with all this beeping. Anyway, eventually, with the Old Testament law, there had to be a new way. There had to be a new covenant. There had to be what we call a New Testament There had to be a once-and-for-all solution to the problem of sin, a never-to-be-repeated sacrifice. We needed Jesus, and I suppose, sadly, but very reluctantly, and I hope not for a thousand years, uh, I will need a new car. Now, when we read about the sacrifices in Leviticus, all five of them were introduced by John, looking at those uh, seven chapters of Leviticus, there's a part of us which immediately feels detached, even bored perhaps, perhaps even revolted as we read of the slaughter and dismembering of all those animals. As Bible readers, um, um, my guess is that rather like the chronologies, when it gets to the sacrifices of Leviticus, we are tempted to skip passages like that, concluding that they have nothing whatever of importance to say to us. I suggest that that's a mistake for the New Testament tells us that all scripture uh, is inspired and useful for teaching, etc. Furthermore, all the New Testament writers, except Jude, draw on Leviticus as a source and Jesus himself was, of course, very familiar with it. The writer of the Hebrews, which Audrey read so uh, beautifully from Hebrews 10, the writer of the Hebrews has a lot to say about the book of Leviticus, and particularly particular the sacrificial system. And he says that the sacrifices are a shadow of the good things that are coming. They're not the reality themselves. Others have called them signposts that point to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And of course, these shadows and signposts seem hideously primitive to us. But don't forget that those were very different times. They were primitive times. The peoples around the people of Israel were often sacrificing children uh, rather than animals. Uh, So in a sense, that's an advance uh, towards what we might call civilization, I suppose. The context, as I said, is Moses receiving and passing on these instructions just as as he had received the Ten Commandments at the foot of Mount Sinai and uh, following the appalling sin of idolatry as they had made the golden calf. And the sacrificial system, elaborate sacrificial system, extremely elaborate sacrificial system, is introduced to counter the tendency to idolatry that is in all of us and was, of course, also in all the people of Israel. It counters the tendency up to idolatry by first emphasising the need for ordered, and organized worship of God. God is uh, living in the tent of the meeting at the center of the people. Eventually, of course, the temple is going to be built and he's going to be dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem, at the heart of his people. And to remind them of the um, importance of recognizing their God and worshiping their God and their God only, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods but me. There is this elaborate system to remember that God is their God and they must have no other. So the, the sacrificial is there to recognize that praise, thankfulness and devotion is due only to the Lord, Yahweh, and to no other God. Le- at least of all man-made gods or the gods of the people round about. And secondly, of course, the, sec- the sacrificial system is introduced for atonement, as the word is used here, more of that later, but for the covering and removal of sin. So what can we learn from these seven chapters? As we often say from this pulpit, the Bible story is about the holy God calling a holy people to himself. That's the story of salvation. The aim, the end game is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's where we're heading. We want to be God's people in God's place, under God's rule. We call that heaven, of course, uh, but for the people in the wilderness, the place where they believed that they would be God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, was the promised land. It was to the promised land of Canaan that they were heading. Now, as it turned out, uh, that too was just a shadow, or a signpost of the reality that was in the future. Sin, uh, which is uh, common to us all, is rebellion against the holy, entirely perfect God. And it's the experience and condition of all who are sons and daughters of Adam. You may have noticed sin in society, injustice, prejudice, oppression. Perhaps like me, you turned the television on at 10.30 on Thursday night to watch Question Time. And you saw sin in society graphically displayed in the appalling prejudiced policies of the British National Party. You may have noticed sin in yourselves, pride, jealousy, selfishness, for instance. If you haven't noticed sin in the world, then you haven't read a newspaper or turned on your radio or TV and you need a reality check. The five different kinds of offering or sacrifice which are explained in great detail in Leviticus chapters 1-7 to are designed to assist an unholy, sinful people like us live with a holy, righteous God. So there are three elements to highlight, three things which are important for us to get into our mind. I'll give you the three words because it's easier to remember it that way. Acceptance, substitution and atonement. Now take the burnt offering for instance which is described in chapter 1, you might want to read about it a bit later. The acceptance of the sacrifice, the fact that the people can bring a sacrifice uh, to uh, the tent of the meeting and that the sacrifice is acceptable to God, means that the holy righteous God who created everything and lives in perfect holiness. This God is prepared to accept something from a sinner. The sinner is not rejected. Now this is remarkably good news for us and for the world in which we live in. And it's news that is often neglected and forgotten. Individually and societally we reject God. But the sacrificial system teaches that he is ready to accept us when we return to him with a sacrifice. And that is very, very good news. The second element is that of substitution. The burnt offering, the slaughtered bull or whatever it was, is on behalf of or in the place of or a substitute for the person who is making the offering. In other words, it should be the person themselves. That's the idea. The worshipper should be the one who is sacrificed. We are the ones who deserve to die. Death is the inevitable consequence of sin and so the death of the animal is a substitute for the death of the individual. And it's likely that the sacrifice is burnt because it means that there will be nothing left. It is total. It's all-consuming. Burning, as you know, is a very good way to be rid of something. And the holy God wishes to be rid of sin in his holy place. So the sacrifice is acceptable It is is a substitute. And then thirdly, in verse 4, the purpose of the burnt offering is, we're told, to make atonement. Apparently, when John Wycliffe came to translate the Bible into English for the first time, he could find no English word that adequately translated the Hebrew. And so he made up this word, atonement. I didn't know that until I prepared this sermon Meant at the end of a word means make, so it means to make at one, at one, make at one, at Uh, one-ment. In other words, this sacrifice, this atoning sacrifice, makes the worshipper at one with God. So keep those three words uh, in your mind, acceptance, substitution and atonement. There is much more that could be said about them, but time is limited. And I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, which I hope you've still got open in front of you. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 10 is the most helpful uh, New Testament light that is thrown on this passage, page um, 1207. When Jesus walked onto this stage of human history, uh, these sacrifices were still being offered at the temple. But the coming of Jesus radically altered everything. And when you come to think of it, all that blood and gore and guts, and that the Israelites kept on having to do it, it should make us say, well, it certainly makes me say a very big thank you. If I had been a priest uh, now in Jerusalem in 0 AD, my job would have been a lot more gory and grim than being the vicar of St. Andrews. So I'm extremely grateful to Jesus for many things, but that's one of the things I'm grateful for. At least I don't have to sacrifice a bull or a sheep uh, week by week in front of you all. Thank goodness. Thank Jesus, actually. But uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 4, the writer tells us very clearly, very plainly, that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. He spells it out as bluntly as he possibly can. How could a bull or a sheep or a bird take our place? How could an animal be an adequate substitute for a human being? A human being is created in the image of God. The people of Israel lived in the confident belief that God had created them to be his friends. How could an animal take away... Uh, the sin or take away or be in the place of a human being how could it possibly be an adequate substitute a human being is far more valuable than that so Jesus is of course as Hebrews is at pains to point out Jesus is of course the perfect lamb of God the only human being who has led a sinful life who by his, co- his, his death on the cross really is an adequate substitute for those of us who put our trust in him and he takes our place as a sacrifice he really does take away our sins he really does pay the price of sin he does what no bull or sheep uh, could possibly do and of course as Hebrews says it is once and for all there is no n- never any need for this sacrifice to be repeated Look at verses um, uh, 11 and 12, for instance, of Hebrews uh, chapter 10 and see how it's spelled out. Day after day, as Audrey read this so beautifully, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Job done. Jesus is the fulfilment of the burnt offerings. And I want us to conclude this morning just with three implications for us now. What difference does this make for us now? Firstly, if Jesus is the fulfilment of the sacrificial system, if he is the once for all sacrifice, then there is now no need for sacrifices. It is striking, is it not, that since 70 AD there has been no temple In Jerusalem and I suggest suggest that there never will be because there is now no need for sacrifice of course some strict Jews campaign for the reconstruction of the temple I doubt that it will happen for Jesus has done for us what the old system could not do instead of the elaborate system of sacrifice we are asked simply now week by week as we have done this morning to confess our sins regularly to God, And on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice for us, God forgives us. That's why we have to say the general confession every week. The general confession is in place of the sacrifice of bulls and sheep and goats. Because we claim the sacrifice of Christ for forgiveness. It is a sacrifice and it is a claim. It is forgiveness based upon grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus revealed at Calvary rather than on law as these sacrificial codes are observed. What great news that is. We live in the New Testament. What great news for the world. So we can, I suggest, reject any notion that there is any sacrifice for sin now. It's why, incidentally, why Cranmer, in the 39 articles and in his um, notes on liturgies and so on, why Thomas Cranmer was so insistent that Anglican churches have a table at the center of their uh, worshipping life, rather than an altar. So you see, you eat a meal at a table. When we have communion here in St. Andrews, we gather around a table to celebrate a meal. We don't gather around an altar to make a sacrifice. Uh, I hope that we can get that terminology uh, right here, because there is no need anymore for sacrifices. Jesus has done it all on the great altar at Calvary secondly if we look on a little bit in Hebrews chapter 10 to verse 19 uh, you will see that we can enter into the presence of God, therefore brothers he writes in verse 19 since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Acceptance, do you see? Acceptance. We can come as sinners to the holy God because of what Jesus has done. We can enter God's presence today by faith, not in the blood of bulls shed for us, but in the blood of Jesus shed for us. And one day we will see him face to face when we truly live in God's place, under God's rule, as God's people. It means that we can do uh, uh, more than the Old Testament Israelite could ever do. His sacrifices could never allow him to enter the place where God dwelt, the most holy place. Only one man on, on one day each year could do that, the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies. And even he was attached with a string so they could pull him out in case anything go- went wrong but you and I can enter the presence of God. I heard a a, a lovely story to illustrate this the other day from someone who was in London and they were walking down a street when some motorbikes pulled up behind the traffic and uh, behind the Rolls-Royce, behind the um, motorbikes, there came a a Rolls-Royce, very smart Rolls-Royce with a little flag on the front. It stopped right beside this chap. And he looked at the car and he wondered who had such a posh car and with with outriders, police motorbikes in front of it. And he looked carefully into the back window, intrigued by this, and he saw the Queen sitting there on the back seat. And he looked at the Queen and for a moment she looked back at him and then the car moved on. But this chap wondered, he thought, imagine if the Queen had wound down the window of her great big Rolls Royce and she'd said hello to him. And she had said to him, would you like a lift? Where are you going? Hop in. I'll give you a lift to wherever you're going. Well, he, had, he said he'd dine out on that for the rest of his life, wouldn't he? He'd live off that forever. He had access to the Queen of England. And she took him where she wanted to go. Well, we have access, this passage, this sacrificial system teaches us. We have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I wonder if sometimes we take it a little bit too much, grant, too much for granted what Jesus has done for us, how he has brought us access to this living God by himself going to the altar of sacrifice and placing his body on the line for us. We come by faith into God's presence day by day on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. Don't downplay how brilliant what Jesus has done is. Don't downplay how amazing it is to have sins atoned for. Don't downplay how remarkable it is to have access to God. Don't downplay how wonderful it is never to have to fear God's anger again as those Israelites had experienced God's anger at the foot of Mount Sinai when they made the golden calf. We plead the sacrifice of Christ and God's anger is turned to love. And so my last implication, uh, my last implication is this. The burnt offering tells us that Jesus loves us and that he provides a model for loving others. Paul puts this most graphically in Ephesians 5.2. Don't bother to turn to it, but let me read it. He writes this, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Note how he uses the language of Leviticus so the third implication is this that these offerings obscure and remote though they seem to us in so many ways show us that God loves his people He, he his love is shown to the Israelites by the introduction of this system every time they offered the sacrifice it reminded them that God wanted them at one with him he was their God personal to them And with his loving heart set upon them, he did not want them to rebel against him. He did not want them to remain unforgiven. He longed to have fellowship with them because his heart of love was set upon them. He was their God. You and I look at the death of Jesus today, Sunday by Sunday, perhaps day by day in our prayer life. And we know, as we look to Jesus, that God loves us. You may feel very unloved today. Perhaps you've experienced hurt in your life, rejection. Perhaps, like so many of our young people today, you experience a very high sense, a a very low self-worth, a real high sense of being useless, of being unwanted, unimportant. This sacrificial system, and in particular the cross of Christ, tells us that Jesus loves you. He really loves you. So those are three weighty implications of the sacrificial system. There's no need for a priest to make any sacrifices. We have access to God's presence and we know that he loves us. Well, what difference is that going to make to me today? What difference will it make to me as I go out into the world? Well, personally, and therefore maybe this is my own personal application which I share with you, we are in different places, perhaps in our own spiritual walk with God, that's okay. But this is, this is what it spoke to me. Personally, I hope that I will never again drift back into thinking that I have to earn God's forgiveness. That was the danger for the Hebrews as they received this letter. The gospel was almost too good to be true. So they were drifting back into Judaism. It can't be a free gift. It can't be. We must have to earn it. We must have to do something. That's not the case. The church has sometimes made the mistake of thinking that the Old Testament religion needs to be introduced into the new. So churches have been built to look like temples with high altars. Priests are encouraged to wear mock-ups of the Old Testament priestly clothes. I personally do not want to go back there. I want to live in the new covenant. I want to live in the freedom of the love that has been revealed in Jesus on the cross. I want to live under a covenant of grace, not a covenant of law. Personally, I'm done with the kind of religion that takes me back to those rules. And secondly, I hope to live in the light of Jesus' love. If he loves me, despite my sin and rebellion, enough to die as my substitute on the cross, then surely I must love him and seek to love others as he did. My life. Our life as a church, your life, should be directed and motivated and driven by the love of Jesus. That should be the great central thing. You see, we look at this and we think it's all about sin. It's all about blood and gore and guts. It's not. It's about the fact that God has not rejected his people. He loves his people. And in the light of that, I want to live in the light and love of Christ. We should be... We should have the love of Jesus at the centre of all that we do. That above all else must mark us out from the world. Are we the people who love Jesus and who show the love of Jesus? As Paul puts it, let's live the life of love. Amen.